You're listening to Comedy Central. June 24, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Teen Vogue here with a new book called More Than Enough. Elaine Walteroth is joining us, everybody. <laughs> also on tonight's show, America went to war and then didn't. There's white people at the BET Awards and why Somali pirates are actually the good guys. So let's catch up <laughs> on today's headlines. Last night was the 2019 BET Awards. It's the show that celebrates black entertainment and gives us a break from reruns of Martin. And as always, (laughs) it was a night to remember. Tons of star power was on display during the BET Awards, including an opening performance by rapper Cardi B. Rihanna presented the legendary Mary J. Blige with the Lifetime Achievement Award. But Taraji P. Henson presented the Ultimate Icon Award to writer, director, actor, producer Tyler Perry. Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus also sharing the stage performing Old Town Road. The country rap smash had everyone out of their seats. That's right. Billy Ray Cyrus got a standing ovation at the BET Awards. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I know black people give standing ovations everywhere, comedy shows, every Sunday at church, the dentist's office, but still, we're talking about a white dude in a cowboy hat named Billy Ray getting an ovation. That's next level. And honestly, I, like, I love it. What a time to be alive. Because imagine if you woke up from a 10-year coma and I told you that Donald Trump was president, Kim Kardashian was reforming the criminal justice system, <laughs> and Billy Ray Cyrus got a standing ovation at the Black Entertainment Television Awards. You'd be like, "Uh, am I still in a coma? (laughs) And why am I getting a standing ovation right now? (laughs) But you know what I really love about the BET Awards? Is it's also an opportunity to see uh, black excellence, not just in front of the camera, but uh, I'm talking about the people in the background. Like for instance, my man over here who lost his seat, uh, then, then he thinks he found it, and then he's like, nope, nope, that's not my, no, all right, I'll see y'all at the after party. And, uh, and then there's this dude who's straight up using the BET Awards as Tinder. Look at that, look at that. Hey, what's up, girl? Hey. Yeah, so congratulations uh, to all of last night's winners, especially to the winners of Best Performance by an Ensemble Cast. Jussie Smollett and the Ripped Nigerian Brothers. What a performance, guys. What a make. Who did that joke? Who did that? It was two Trump supporters. Moving on. While black people are winning awards, Democrats are trying to win black people's hearts, which is why this weekend, all 250 Democratic candidates descended on South Carolina to eat fried food and pitch themselves to voters. Democratic hopefuls on the campaign trail trying to drum up support in an early primary state. The South Carolina primary is more than 250 days away, but these candidates are all down here. They were at a steaming hot fish fry trying to make the case to African-American voters. Congressman, that is some damn good fish. 
Thank you for the fish fry. Whomever the Democratic nominee is, we have to stay together and elect a Democrat. We are going to bring the American people together. We may be in the midst of a primary, but when the primary is over, we become a united force. Why are you all yelling into a microphone? <laughs> a microphone does the yelling for you. A poor microphone. 21 Democrats all just ate fish and then spat all over that thing. <laughs> Microphone's so toxic, it's gonna be the next season of Chernobyl. That's what it's gonna be. <laughs> anyway, we would love to go more in depth about the fish fry, but honestly, nothing big happened. And that's the problem with having 21 candidates at an event. No one has any time to say anything meaningful. Every event is just like, hello, South Carolina, that's been my time, you've been great. <laughs> so we'll have to wait until the Democratic debates to see what their policy ideas actually are. And speaking of policies, let's move on to our next story. Over the past year, the Department of Homeland Security has come under fire for the way it's been treating asylum seekers at the border. And despite the criticism, things just seem to be getting worse. This week, Congress will consider a plan to send $4.5 billion in humanitarian aid to the border, where facilities are overwhelmed with a record number of families. One doctor who recently visited a center in Texas described the facility as torture. She says children were living in filth without soap, toothbrushes, or other basic sanitation. Journalist and novelist Michael Scott Moore, who was abducted by Somali pirates, tweeted this. Somali pirates gave me toothpaste and soap. Yeah. That's just flat out embarrassing. Somali pirates treated their hostages better than how America is treating refugee children at the border. I feel like somewhere right now, that pirate from Captain Phillips is saying, America, look at me, look at me. <laughs> I am the humanitarian now, huh? <laughs> Actually, I feel like maybe Somali pirates are pissed off about this tweet because they don't want to be seen as nice guys. Yeah, they're pirates. Yeah, they're probably like, oh no, now that they know about the toothpaste, they're going to, they're going to know that we are soft, huh? This is a disaster. <laughs> I can't even look at myself. Look at myself. <laughs> I don't deserve to be the captain. <laughs> and by the way, I really hope that President Trump doesn't see that tweet, because he's the one person who would learn the wrong lesson from it. Yeah, his advisors would say, they would say, sir, Somali pirates treat their hostages better than we're treating children. He'd be like, so does that mean we give the children to the pirates? He'd be like, no, no, sir. So the pirates should run ice now? No, 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 sir. So then I'm in charge of the pirates? I'm the captain now? All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our main story. The USA versus Iran. Over the past week, tensions in the Middle East have ramped up bigly after Iran shot down an unmanned American sky dildo. And now, <laughs> America said that the drone was shot down over international waters, but Iran said it was flying in their airspace. And we're learning that on Thursday night, America almost went to war. In just 24 hours ago, last night, the U.S. was within minutes of striking Iran, but President Trump suddenly stopping the strike before it could happen. President Trump tweeting this. We were cocked and loaded to retaliate last night on three different sites when I asked how many would die. 150 people, sir, was the answer from a general. 10 minutes before the strike, I stopped it. Not proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone. Sweet Lord, America was 10 minutes away from bombing Iran. And who stopped it? Donald Trump. 
Yeah. What, what's that? Who ordered the strike? Also Donald Trump. <laughs> the point is, we are at peace, thanks to and in spite of President Trump. <laughs> and can we just take a second to acknowledge how often this happens? Trump takes us all to the brink of a crisis, and then he's the one that pulls us back at the last second. Sometimes it feels like there are two different Trumps making these decisions. And you know what, like, maybe they are. Maybe he has an identical twin running around the White House. You know? It's like one of those sister-sister situations. Yeah. I mean, that would explain all of the flip-flopping. In fact, it would explain everything. It'd be like, the Mexicans are rapists, and some of them are good people. I'm gonna release my tax returns. No, I'm not. I'm gonna play golf. I'm also gonna play golf. So as you saw, in the president's tweet. The reason that he called off the missile strikes is because 10 minutes before the launch, he found out how many people could die in a strike. And to him, a drone wasn't worth taking human lives. And honestly, I commend him for even saying that. But now, people are shooting down his story like it's an unmanned sky dildo. The Washington Post today reporting the president had been briefed hours earlier about potential risks and casualties and was supportive of military action until around 7 p.m. when he appeared to change his mind. This just doesn't add up that, that if when the president meets with his top Pentagon people, they give him a, a very thorough list, a menu of targets and say, you can hit this target, you can hit that target. If you do, here are the possible casualties. They, go, they run through the whole thing. Yeah, according to multiple people, the president's story doesn't make sense. Because they say a president doesn't find out about potential casualties 10 minutes before a strike. Those numbers are actually presented when the strike is proposed. In other words, they give the president a menu of options and then he picks what he would like to do. And I think that's where this all fell apart. You see, this isn't a guy who uses menus, okay? It looks too much like a book. <laughs> this is a guy who points at pictures and asks for numbers. That's who this is. <laughs> Give me that one with an extra that one. That's him. And I'll be taking a soak in the ball pit. Let me know when it's ready. <laughs> now, as much as we would like, we would like to believe that this happened because Trump didn't pay attention in a meeting, it might actually be more complicated than that, right? Because it's been reported that the president may have been given two different sets of casualty numbers. Yeah, that's what happened. Well, that's what they're saying happened. And that wouldn't be surprising because it turns out there are two different factions in this administration. And they've both been pulling Trump in very different ways. Sources tell CNN Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton both favored striking Iran, while outside advisors reminded him of his promise to get the U.S. out of wars, not in them. Vice President Mike Pence supported the planned military strike on Iran, but also agreed with the president's decision to stop them. <laughs> Wait, what? The vice president supported launching airstrikes and not launching airstrikes? I've got to say, the last thing I expected to hear about Mike Pence is that he swings both ways. <laughs> like... Seriously, what a... What a straight-up kiss-ass. He's <laughs> like, sir, I think we should strike Iran. I don't want to do it. And you shouldn't, sir. Great decision. <laughs> so the Hawks were pushing Trump into war, and the Doves were urging restraints. And I don't know what the Doves told President Trump, but it looks like for now, it's worked. The president says if it comes to war, the U.S. will, quote, obliterate Iran. But what he really wants is talks. 
aimed at a new deal to keep Iran from getting nuclear weapons. If Iran wants to become a wealthy nation again, become a prosperous nation, we'll call it, let's make Iran great again. Does that make sense? Make Iran great again. Wait, what? Make Iran great again? So in 48 hours, Trump went from threatening Iran to pitching a mega franchise in Tehran? <laughs> and I'll be honest, I don't know if MEGA has the same ring to it. <laughs> and it could be a lot of trouble if Iran ever pisses Trump off. He'd be like, all right, they changed their mind, so we're switching it to never Iran great again. <laughs> be like, sir, no, I, I don't think, I don't think we should write. Change it now, change it to never. Look, sir, look what you've done. Oh, my, my bad. <laughs> look, if you pay attention, it's pretty clear to see what's happening here. Trump doesn't want to go to war with Iran, right? And he also doesn't mind sitting down with them to make a deal. Feels like the truth is, he just doesn't want Obama's nuclear deal. So Iran, here's all you need to do. Take the nuclear deal you already had, replace Obama with Trump, <laughs> turn the whole thing gold for no reason. <laughs> and most importantly, don't forget to use pictures. It makes it easy for him to decide. <laughs> yeah. That's a deal both Trump's team left behind. All right, we'll be right back. Law enforcement. Historically, men of America's police departments have been strained. Their relationship has been strained with their minority communities. And over the past few years, there's been an increased focus on how they can improve. You know, some people think that body cameras are the answer. Uh, some say America needs more diverse police forces. Personally, I think all police should have to always ride segways. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I think it's adorable and, uh... <laughs> Secondly, you can't shoot anyone because you need both hands to steer. You'd be like, free, ah, free, ah. <laughs> now, just this weekend, presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, he had to leave the campaign trail to deal with a police shooting in his own city, where many residents have blamed racism for how the police treat black people in their own town. But the sad truth is that this is a nationwide problem. In fact, recently, the Plain View Project did a review of the social media posts of police officers across the country. And the findings are already making waves. This morning, the Philadelphia Police Department under fire. 72 of the city's police officers taken off the streets and placed on administrative duty under investigation for allegedly posting offensive and racist statements on social media. The Facebook posts in question contain discriminatory opinions. If our country was all Caucasian, the homicide rate would drop 70%. Perhaps we should be very suspicious of all Muslims in this country, said another. Or encourage violence. It's a good day for a chokehold. Yeah, your reaction is right. Imagine seeing that, the police posting, it's a good day for a chokehold. It's never a good day for a chokehold, all right? Chokeholds don't belong in your workplace. In fact, chokeholds don't belong in any workplace. Like there's no, unless maybe you, if you work at the Cheesecake Factory, maybe then. <laughs> yeah, no, after someone's had like a slice of cake with 5,000 grams of sugar, that's the only way to calm them down. It's like, sir, please, 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 please. <laughs> I know it's tasty, calm down, shh. But this study, this study wasn't just focused on Philadelphia, right? This report reviewed the social media of police officers in eight cities 
and counties, right? And they found, they found in all of these eight cities that out of the 3,500 cops accounts, 853 had posted, posted uh, offensive content. Imagine that, 853 had posted offensive content. Yeah, that's almost a quarter of all of the accounts. And they're just the dumb cops, the ones who put it online. Yeah, because you know the smart cops, the racist ones, they keep it in their DMs. <laughs> so police departments everywhere are realizing that they could have racist cops. And while it is encouraging that cities like Philadelphia are taking them off the streets, the bad news is elsewhere, they're getting promoted. Controversy in Louisiana where a police officer who shared a racist image on social media has been promoted to chief. Wayne Welsh made headlines in 2017 when he shared a depiction of a white woman pushing a little girl's face into bath water, supposedly as punishment for having a crush on a black child. Yeah, what the f man? I mean, it's not even just that that's a racist meme. The fact that they made that person, the person who posted that, police chief. How do you post something like that and get a promotion? It's like if someone hijacked a plane and the FAA was like, yeah, you've got talent. You wanna fly full-time? Come on. <laughs> and I've, I've gotta be honest, like, uh, like, I don't know what's scarier than having a racist police chief. I guess the only thing is realizing that in many places, these officers are just a reflection of their communities. The mayor says the meme is irrelevant now because it was posted nearly two years ago, in July of 2017, when Chief Welsh was assistant police chief. He was disciplined, he was dealt with, and, uh, and then he was reelected, ran unopposed. Well, what does it say about the people of this community that they would elect somebody like that? You know, I was not the mayor back at that time. I understand what you're saying, but I'm not gonna elaborate on that. Is this town racist? No, it's not. Do you use the N-word? often, but I don't use it as racist. How is using the N-word as a white man not racist? I don't find it racist. I got plenty of black friends. We all use it. Yeah, we all use it. Yeah, I call my black friends nigger and they say, stop calling me nigger. <laughs> so the bad news is that racism is extremely pervasive in America's police departments and people need to acknowledge that. In fact, it's gotten so bad that Philadelphia has had to suspend 72 of their own cops. The good news is, for those cops, there's definitely a town that'll hire you. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is an award-winning journalist and former editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, who is now a judge on Project Runway and an author of the New York Times bestseller, More Than Enough, claiming space for who you are, no matter what they say. Please welcome Elaine Welteroff. Welcome to the show. We've got a live audience here. This is fun. We have a good time out here. Uh, congratulations Thank you on not so only much. your first book, but on being a New York Times bestseller. Listen, I'm just trying to keep up with this guy. <laughs> Thank you. It, Thank it, you. It feels like this was uh, an inevitable step for you because so many people were blown away, not just by your leadership, but by your writing at mm. Teen Vogue. Like, Thank you, you. You, you seem to have always had a way with words. Where do you get that from? You know what? I think I, my dad would like to say I get it from him. 
Um, he would like to take credit for that. But yeah, I think ever since I was a little kid, I was always interested in storytelling. I remember being like in the bathtub right. at six years old, and I would pretend to be Oprah or Barbara Walters, and I would just interview like these imaginary people, and it would be so dramatic. Yeah, because there's someone in the bathtub with you. It's just like, there's a six-year-old, you're like, why are you in my bathtub? Right. First question. Right, like most people have like their moms doing story yes, time. Yes, I'm yes. like, mom, I'm good. I'm good here. You, you have a personality that has, that has really just, I mean, it, it has blown you up in, in, in multiple different fields. More than enough tells us the story behind what we see mm. in front of the camera, and that is who you are and how you became who you are today. Why that title, More Than Enough? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because um, I struggled with what to call this book. Um, what's the through line? I knew all the stories that I needed to tell. Right. And it's really about, you know, going beyond the headlines and the highlight reels that we scroll every single day on the internet. Um, but the title really, more than enough, it, it's, a, it's a mantra that I think we all need, particularly young women, women, people of color, people from marginalized communities, because for generations, we have been made to feel that we're not enough. Right. You know, and I think it resonates with anyone, really. We all know that feeling of not feeling smart enough, successful enough, skinny enough, tall enough. Uh And, you know, we both have experienced, you know, not black enough, not white enough, coming from interracial families. Right. Um, And so I think as you go through the book, you kind of see yourself in this journey, this arc, where you're born into the world with this limitless sense of possibility and unbridled confidence. And then over time, the world starts to chip away at that, particularly young girls who, a stat I found when I was writing the book is that young girls' confidence peaks at age nine. It peaks at Peaks nine? at age nine, which was so heartbreaking to me. And then I thought about my life and I was like, no, nah, it makes sense. Think about all the messages that we're getting. And then right, now you layer right, on right. social media. And so you can kind of see this journey that I think we all go through where we're, if we're lucky, we get to a point where we start to reclaim you know, some of that confidence in who we were really born right. to be. So this is what the, the, the book is actually about. It's a, it's a larger arc that I think we all can relate to. You talk in the book about finding your mentor. You know, you wanted to get into the world of magazines and you just, you just hunted somebody down. You're like, I'm going to work with you. <laughs> I was a stalker, basically. <laughs> yeah, a I was very relentless. classy stalker, yes. yes. <laughs> Somehow it worked. Right. Yes. But, 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 but how did you even think of that? Like, well, how did you choose your mentor? And then how did you, like, how do you go, Harriet Cole is going to be the person I, I want to shadow. And how do you then even begin the journey of taking all those no's and then turning them into a yes? Well, here's what I think. I think it's important to find out what you don't want to do. And so I kind of did soul searching early on. And, and, and then I kind of had an aha moment. I realized I wanted to be a magazine editor. I had no idea how to make that happen as a small town girl who knew no one in New York City. And right. No one in this magazine world or fashion. And so I found this woman. I felt really drawn to this woman named Harriet Cole, black woman who had this really multifaceted career in in media. Right. And I was so drawn to her. I was like, this is my career role model. This is the woman I want to be. And so I proceeded to stalk her. And this was pre, this was pre-social media. Like oh, that's now OG you can just stalking. OG stalking. Like yeah. now I could just slide into your DMs, Trevor. Right. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. And like maybe you'll respond one day. Right. But even if you don't, I can see the way you're living your life and I can be inspired by you from afar digitally, right? But back in the day, I mean, I had to like snail mail her. I had to find her assistance phone number and call every day. And luckily she eventually took my call because I threatened to show up with coffee. Wow, that's inspiring and creepy. It really is. No, it's amazing. And I mean, that that really is- I don't recommend it, but it did work. (laughs) 
But you know what it is? I think it's because of the way I'm you gonna did get stalkers and, after and this what you were. Yeah, they're gonna stalk you and yeah. be like, "How does it feel?" <laughs> um, here's the thing, though. You you came into it with a base of knowledge. You did the work. You know, and I think that that's what that's what you feel in the story is that it's not just a story of lucking your way through or forcing your way through. You were mm. doing the work. I mean, it's no mistake that at 29 you became the youngest editor in chief in Teen Vogue's history. That is that's an insane achievement. <laughs> what is even more impressive, in my opinion, is that you take over at Teen Vogue and everybody remembers this. Teen Vogue shifted its focus and what people saw it as, and it went from being a uh, just a magazine where it was just about beauty tips alone mm. to now engaging young people, predominantly young women, in politics, social justice, what's going on in their world. Some people were like, who is Teen Vogue to talk about politics? That was really done under your curatorship. Why was that important? And how would you even begin to do that in what people consider just a beauty space? It was a critical responsibility. I mean, you have to think about what was happening at the time the 2016 election had just taken place. And, you know, this is a generation that cares deeply about the issues that affect our world and that directly affect them, whether they can vote or not. Right. And they see themselves as activists. They see themselves as change agents. And we needed to respect and reflect that. And so it felt like a real responsibility. And, you know, we threw out the formulas. We didn't know if it was going to work, but we knew it was the right thing to do. And um, we really ended up finding a much larger audience, actually, of, of really engaged, politically uh, engaged young people. Right. And I just feel really proud of what the work that we were able to do collectively as a young team. It was a very young team of people that really took risks to change that, to really transform that brand. Um, and hopefully more adults think uh, of, their, of their young teenagers in new ways now. I hope that they're inviting them to the conversations right, to right, talk right, about politics right. because they have an opinion and their voices matter. Their voices definitely matter. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, Congratulations. Thank you on so much. an amazing much. book. Thank you. More Than Enough is available now. Elaine Walteroff, everybody. <laughs> The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.